Hello, and welcome to Hush Plus One, where we talk to exciting artists, designers, and makers. I'm your host, Adam Kruckenberg, and on today's episode, we have Jared Greenleaf, who is a distinguished motion designer and the recipient of tons of awards. He's a gifted educator and is currently teaching concept development and motion design at Ringling College. He came in and gave us a really compelling class on the storytelling inherent in motion design. Take a listen. <laughs> sure. Um, my name is Jared Greenleaf, and um, I was born and raised in um, in Hawaii, in the island of uh, Kauai. And it, I love that you know I come from a part of the world where there was not a lot of technology. But when the internet hit in '95, <laughs> it was it was nice that the the world became sort of my education. And um, I've eventually made it to uh, the Ringling College of Art and Design, which is an amazing school. And there's uh, uh, one of our majors there is motion design. And um, Ed Cheatham um, st started that major several years ago. And uh, now it's uh, the third largest major there. It, it, it is growing exponentially because <clears throat> and sorry everyone my voice is uh i'm losing my voice so this is not what i normally sound like <laughs> but um um it's just been great because motion design has always been there right i mean filmmakers always needed a graphic designer animators always needed a filmmaker you know um so sound designers needed you know to cross into the path you know and and do work with a lot of other people. And I love that, you know, architecture meets animation, right? And so if ever there's a need to combine different mediums, um, there's always going to be motion design. And I like that. Even I had to discover that I was always a motion designer, you know, and I love teaching that now. Did you do design before you did motion design? Um, yes. Um, I, what was interesting was uh, my schooling was more in the fine arts and more on the illustration side. My heroes were, you know, like Baron Story or Sergio Tappi or Mobius, you know. And um, but f for one reason or another, the only job, the only job I could, you know, as a young college student, the only job I could always land was always graphic design, you sure. know. And you fake it till you make it, right? And so, <laughs> you know, so type and and the graphic design principles became my new things to draw, so to speak, right? And compose, and it was really fun. And so my, so yes, illustration, yes to design, but design sort of came through the back door. And um, it wasn't until I met um, Ryan Woodward, who... Um, as a storyboard artist for many of the Marvel films that um, a sort of a light went off in my head to make me think, oh, I guess animation isn't as unattainable for a kid from Hawaii as I thought it was. And so I, for my, what was interesting when I met him, it was literally a month before I graduated with my undergrad, 
So no animation up until that point. And I decided to extend my education into uh, graduate studies. And I focused, the, the major I went to was fine arts, but by definition, fine arts is anything, right? Right, yeah. Redefine. And so I decided that my, my, the medium I would use to explore anything would be uh, animation. And then through that, I got to gain some experience under Ryan, um, helping him out with some, you know, Marvel films and whatnot in a very small capacity, but huge for experience. And eventually, Absolutely. yeah. I mean, it sort of brings me to my, my next question. I, I know that you really focus on small stories uh, when it comes to motion design. And did you get that from storyboarding initially? Actually, yes. Um, so uh, the school I was going to where I met Ryan, uh, who was at the time a professor there, is at Brigham Young University in Utah. And they're a top 20, um, top 15 um, university. They sent a lot of their students to, you know, Blue Sky and Weta. They're mostly known for texturing and lighting, the, the technical end, right? Uh, but Ryan sort of, the, the students who gravitated around Ryan uh, found that they were doing more 2D um, small story, like small team production, like what can we do with one to two people, you know, maybe three, you know? And so um, that was sort of my back door into motion design was this creative constraint of let's just keep it really short. And the the initial animations we did were character driven, but they eventually went to non-character uh, kind of animations for clients like aquariums, you know, where we have to talk about the, you know, pollution impact on plankton life, you know, and little things like that. So does that answer your question? Sure. I'm interested in actually kind of delving into the stories of even abstract animation. There's a reason for motion when it's motion design. Right. And so I'm, I'm just interested in how you developed those stories and decided on what you teach? So <clears throat> I was, um, I just graduated school and, and I, I loved teaching. And so I continued to teach in the evenings um, on top of my, my day job, which was, you know, I was a motion graphic specialist. And um, in, a, in a school of 30,000 students, the, you know, the, whether you get into a major like animation or graphic design or illustration wasn't decided until after your first freshman year. And so there were fundamental classes they had to take to um, to develop their portfolio, and that's those were some of the classes I took, uh, taught, and um, the students that I taught were so diverse from you know advertising, photography, interior design, you know art forms that don't really need an understanding of the human figure, you know, or human expression. Sure. But mixed in with those were graphic designers, illustrators, animators. And to sort of level the playing field, uh, and selfishly because I wanted to do abstract, I wanted to do something to do with sequential art, something to do with comics. Um, I decided on an assignment that would be called Abstract Comics, and I got the idea from uh, Abstract Comics, the anthology, which is a great book on Amazon. You should all get. And um, when I went through this book, I realized that there was these basic stories here, you know. One word, basic hyphen story, like basic stories. I would, some would just be like these abstract patterns of, of uh, shapes, but I feel like maybe they got these patterns from maybe 
you know, um, deconstructing shots from a Bruce Lee movie because they felt so impactful, you know, and like, oh, this feels like conflict, you know. Or there was another um, abstract comic piece where it was just um, these uh, sort of like doodles, right? And the doodles were um, condensed into... There were no formal patterns, but there were just these these areas of doodles. But when you look closely, you you realize that it's actually one line, unbroken, and each panel was connected by the line, and so it create the shape of like a rectangle and all these squiggly lines, and then it move on to the next panel and then create that. I'm like, oh, that's exploration, right? That's kind of interconnecting. It's more about the journey rather than the the scenic sort of monu you know um uh what do you call brain fart uh, <clears throat> uh land you know when you look at uh just landscapes and give me the word i'm thinking landscape so yeah landscape. yeah so it's more about the journey rather than like the destinations you know sure and then um yeah kisho tenketsu which is introduction and development of something but then throwing in a twist but and then at the end um you know, bringing those two things together in a non-conflicting way, you know? Sure. And so, yeah, it, it, I just, and the students loved it. They love that they're able to, you know, focus more on mark making and expression mark making and, and not having to rely on the figure, yet having complete control over story, you know? The, the idea of having story without recognizable figure is uh, kind of, it seems to me, like something that would be very revolutionary in the way that things have been taught. Yeah, I mean, it's what I'm teaching is just analyzing what is already being done there. So when I look at the project that the projects that you've done at Hush, all I can see are those those uh, those basic story archetypes. You know, I just see like um, you know the transformation of of the information of a building into you know, uh, transformative and growing lines, you know, and stuff. And that's like, oh, that's, that's the story. Sequence story is about engagement. Engagement is about responding to a person. And that doesn't necessarily, while there's some form of sequence, you can break that sequence up. I think I'm trying to figure out how to better teach that. All I know is that interactive and experiential needs to be taught and the questions need to be asked. And um, and by throwing in the audience and giving them some leverage of control that, well, you have to deal with it, so figure it out. And if, if you can think of things in, in a basic story, I think that helps. I think that helps. And there's a lot of details, but um, it's, hard to, it's hard to teach. A fellow faculty told me this. It's like it's... it's how do you teach something, right? You have to, sh <laughs> you have to show them. You have to show them, which right. is why, rather than trying to explain like a sage on a stage, all right, this is Kisho Tenketsu. We start with introduction. You know, I thought it was better to just show you videos, absolutely, and let you figure it out for Allowing yourself. Allowing you to experience the phenomenon rather than just being lectured about the structure of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely phenomenology is a fun thing to play with in education too. So you said you were, you were writing a book. Uh, yeah, it's a instructional book. I technically the book is written because, um, in our department at motion design, we are very enthusiastic about 
I'm using a uh, teaching system called Canvas. And, um, it, you know, it, it's a double-edged sword. On, on the one hand, when it becomes a, a really nice resource for students to rely on when the teacher isn't there, uh, the other side of that is um, if you use it, you need to really use it well because the students will hold you to it. And so um, I like to flip the classroom. I want the students to read about you know, I've, I've tried to, as eloquently as I can, sort of write out an introduction. This is what it is. Click on this example. What did you think of this example? You know, and so I've kind of written all that out. And then I want the students to come to class with questions. Sometimes I'll throw in a quiz, and the quiz won't even be graded. But when a student, you know, comes to the front of the classroom with all the students, having gotten wrong answers on a few questions, they're more prone to discuss things with you <laughs> than, than they would if you just started talking to them. You know what I mean? Trying to get that student engagement up. Yeah. So, yeah, I am. Uh, my goal is to uh, write this book. And I think the, f uh, and, and it's pretty much written out, the two components that are sort of missing that I'm in the process of working on is um, um, building a student example to for visual examples you know there's there's already a lot but i i need i need to find i need to curate that and the other is i really need to do what i just did here with hush and and present these um it's it's not new information but it's just a new way to organize the information that we already deal with i need to test that with you all and i need to get your responses and your questions and most importantly, your questions like, uh, how would I would use this? You know, if my textbook had were mostly just questions to ask, I'd be happy with that. I'm not concerned with all the answers. Just ask the right questions. He who controls the room. I mean, he who con controls the questions, control the room kind of scenario, you know? Sure. So I want a book that teaches you to ask the right questions. Do you have a name yet? Well, I think it'll just be the seven basic story archetypes. Um, Great. Yeah, for motion design, maybe, I think, something like that. Looking forward to checking that out when it's done. Well, maybe you can help me <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. We'll, comment we'll, on that. We'll right. get some uh, connection on that. So what are the new things that you're thinking about right now that you haven't really necessarily ah. solidified? Like, what's what do you feel like is happening in motion design that you want to explore more? Um, it's, so there's definitely a couple things on my mind. Uh, one of the things on my mind is the question that um, one of your colleagues asked, you know, how can this work for interactive? You know, Absolutely. and I love that. And there was another um, gentleman right next to him, one of your colleagues that said, oh, I can see how this would easily work in a, in a video game situation, but how would it work? for a, or more of a short answer. And it's been done, so I know there's an answer for that. One big question is how, how do we have these basic story archetypes help solve the dilemma of the audience having control, right, in, in an art sort of experiential interactive environment? So that's one thing. And the other thing is um, more further development on what it means, what is the definition of abstract? Um, 
an interesting thing that happens in culture, like it's happened with cultural tattoos. Um, I'm a bit of a expert when it comes to iconography with Polynesian like symbols. I mean, it was a couple of days ago I saw someone's like Marquesas Tahitian tattoo, and I said, "Do you know what your tattoo means?" Because would you like to know did, what it means? Did they know what know? it means? Actually, they they did. I mean, they they were told they were they like for instance, um, he pointed to a shape that said, these are my parents. And I said, oh, well, what they literally mean is that's, that's the abstract icon for a hero. And he's putting two heroes together and that's what he's calling your parent, you know? Um, so, um, where was I? Oh, so, um, but what, what's happened? You see tattoos that were made by an artist who was looking, who's great, like a Xerox machine, who's great at copying a copy of a copy of a copy and meanings get lost right and so they create things that have a, an audience reaction of abstract but they're not really referencing the real and so the question i'm trying to answer this summer before the next uh, semester starts and it's and, um coincidentally it, it was a question that once again one of my colleagues kind of helped me to ask that question of myself was how do you codify referencing from the real into the abstract in a way that makes sense for motion designers? Because, and once again, these ideas that I'm about to share with you are borrowed, uh, but uh, you know, Graham would tell me, okay, if a, if a person is in a car, oh no, what were we talking about? Okay, so a person is diving off a board and he hits the water. Right? What's an abstract version of that? Oh, someone will probably just draw a circle falling into, you know, a bunch of triangles, right? And they're abstractifying like visual, but what about abstractifying emotion? What does the feeling of, you know, impacting water, what does that look like? Not literally what it looks like, but what does it feel like? And that just blew my mind. And, um, I love that about being in an educational environment. And so the first thing I did was come up with like this kind of diagram. Okay, okay, how do we, how do I make sense of all this? How do we, what could you reference? You can reference emotion. You could reference motion. You could reference design, you know? And uh, so lots of questions that I want to answer. That's amazing because uh, as, a, as a sound designer, I'm always trying to, to convey concepts that are not sounds. Mm, and yeah. so that's very much that's very much kind of a part of the way that I'm trying to think about things. And I'm not trying to make like literal mm -hmm. like fully for a lot of things either. So it's I mean, Well, it's all about intention, right? Like um so that's funny. One of the things I tell the students they need to um ascertain before they go to our sound designer. And Kelly Warner is a sound designer. He works full-time for our students. He's great. Um, but, you know, there's a lot a student may not convey um, from a discussion with me when they go and talk with their sound designer. So I wanted to make sure that there was less miscommunication or less deletion of information. And so, okay, say we're working with a theme, and the theme is underlining meaning. Um, you know, a theme is not necessarily like, oh, it's a hula theme party. That's actually design. That's not theme, right? Um, so theme would be like a emotion or a moral, like a coming of age or, um, you know, um, 
a moral, right? So it's not like love. It's not just love would be a theme. A theme would be love is terrible. That's a theme. So get your theme and then on top of that theme, add some emotional words in the form of adjectives that modify that theme. And you've basically got two options. You can either embrace a theme of love is bad and have a mournful, um, depressed um, adjectives to drive the sound, or you could go against that and have more of a um, sarcastic, comedic, um, uh, maybe bossy kind of feel for this thematic um, idea of um, love sucks. You know what I mean? And so having the theme of the story plus the adjective that will either modify it or embrace it, that needs to be decided on in pre-production and then that needs to be conveyed in, that, in those simple, simplest terms to the sound designer. And that way the sound designer can kind of hold them to it. That sounds amazing. Um, Jared, I think we're about done here. Our time's pretty close to up, but thank you so much for coming in. And it's a pleasure. Good luck with uh, your explorations this summer. Thank you. Thank you. A lot of explorations. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Sure.